Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now, on to the show. Lisa Davis, so glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. My fantastic co-host, Sunny, is away today. So I thought, hmm, Sunny isn't here and I'm sad. What's going to make me feel better? I know, bringing back my favorite guest, which is Dr. David Camp. Don't tell all the other guests. Now, they're all fabulous too, but Dr. Camp holds a special place in my heart. Dr. Camp, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. And I won't tell your other guests what you said. <laughs> Now, I know we've asked you this before because you've been on, but for people who are new, Sunny usually asks every guest the same question. What were you marinated in? Uh, what was I marinated in? Wow, that's a, I think that's a new standard question. So just to be clear, you're, we're not talking about like this weekend. Oh, we're talking about your childhood, like the values, what shaped you, that kind of thing. Uh, I think what shaped me most was the importance of people having um, high quality conversations. I think that uh, even though my parents loved each other a great deal, I would not say they had, they typically had high quality conversations and I was very much in touch with the gap between <clears throat> how they uh, felt about each other and the way that, that uh, often did not manifest in what felt to me like good ways of relating. So I think that that, uh, experience, that experience shaped my interest in the question of how do people talk to each other more effectively so they can uh, increase the mutual levels of happiness and collaboration. Yeah, and that's why you are the dialogue guy. So for people who aren't familiar with you, first of all, not right now because I don't want you to miss out, but go back to the shows and look at look for the Dr. David Camp. He's been on a couple of times. But tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you do, which is so fantastic. Like like many people these days, I've been doing it for a while, though. I, I'm, I'm in the DEI space, I guess it's called, trying to help the nation deal with the challenge of broadening the number of people who feel uh, included at the tables of decision-making and power and resources, for that matter. So I have a DEI firm called The Dialogue Company. And so it does. it's in that space, but <clears throat> there's a broader commitment that I have uh, to the process of dialogue in general. So... Uh, while the DI space is as important as it is for the country, I ha also have an interest in things like anti-polarization, right? Which is not necessarily a DEI thing exactly. Sure. Uh, I wrote my, one of my, my last book was called uh, Compassion Transforms Contempt. And it's about the left-right divide and how we need to uh, be more effective at it. And it's especially targeted towards uh, white folks who are on the liberal side because of the 
<laughs> awful ways they talk to folks on the conservative side and how that actually keeps our polarization in place. So That was a lot. You got to expand on that right now. The way the liberals talk to the people on the right. I know what you're getting at, but for people who are like liberal people who probably are mostly the ones who listen to the show are like, wait a second, what? Okay, I'll go, I'll go back. Sure, I, I'll go back. There's a big divide in this country. I, I have argued that the biggest divide in this country is not necessarily between white people and people of color. It's among white people. And between people who believe that racism is a big problem and people who believe it's not a problem. And those those groups of white folks, white folks are split about 50-50 on that, according to polling data. And the conversations between the two are just awful. They're just, just terrible. And, 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 and I, I ultimately, what's ironic to me is that the people who are on the, on the left side of that, who at least explicitly are more pro-compassion, they completely, they often lack compassion as they're trying to have these conversations to persuade other people toward more compassion. So people are condescending and they're, um, they're superior and they're rude and they're, they're problematic in all sorts of ways. All are ways that do not help persuasiveness. So in this, so in the aim of trying to help people of color to be, to, so those people are more compassionate, they bring a lack of compassion that keeps those people where they are and keeps our, our politics and even our relations stuck. So you got people who they don't want to go home for holidays because like, I'm, I don't want to talk to my Trump supporting cousin or, or various things, various decisions like that, which I think are bad for they're bad for the family. They're bad for people of color and they're bad for America. So part of the, what that book, that particular book was about was trying to encourage white folks on the broadly speaking on the left to have better conversational approaches with people on the right. Uh, because I think it, because let's also remember that the forces of division, let's say Trump epitomizes that Oof. they like us being divided. They, they like y'all being divided. And so, so part of what I think is an important thing for people to remember is to do whatever it takes. And I give, I give specific strategies about what to do, so that they can bring a better sense of balance and compassion to those encounters so that they're more effective. So that's a particular, that's not, that, that is a, a version of a DEI problem, but not classically in the DEI space. So that's, so that's, so there's in the, my, my company, the dialogue company focused on the DEI space. I have a particular interest in anti-polarization problem. I also have a particular interest, as I have said, said <clears throat> in uh, helping white folks, talk to other white folks about racism. So I have a series of books under the White Ally Toolkit brand, the White Ally Toolkit workbook. I have a discussion guide for that. I have equipping anti-racism allies. I have a few books on that because I'm in particularly interested in the way that white folks who are on the side of 50% of white folks who think racism is a problem can talk to the 50% of white folks who don't in a way that, that potentially turns those uh, I call them racism skeptics into aspiring allies. Right. So, um, so that's a particular interest of of mine. You know that that really helps. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you know me. Yeah, I am one of those people who who's not helping. I'm trying to help. Actually, that's not true. I have gotten better. <laughs> no, I really have. I have gotten better. But to me, if you're a white person who doesn't believe in racism, you're a fucking idiot. So, yes, and that's not very compassionate, right? No. Um, for example, I'll give you an example. So. One of my best friends is a black woman. She's married to a white guy who's a Trumper and watches Tucker Carlson. And a couple months ago, I said, he doesn't watch Tucker Carlson, right? And she goes, oh, God, no, he's terrible. And then 
about two weeks ago, we were driving along and I, she said, Lisa, I lied to you, but I didn't realize I lied. I'm like, what are you talking about? She said, well, I go to bed before my husband and I went into the den and he was watching Tucker Carlson. He watched Tucker Carlson. He didn't know. Yeah. And he actually tapes them. After his, his wife goes to bed. <laughs> so Tucker comes up pretty early. So unless, she, unless she's like 85 and going to bed at 630, what's going on is he's not being honest. He's purposely hiding that fact from her. Yes, but I completely lost it. How could you be married to him? He's such a racist. Oh, my God. Uh I know, right? Totally wrong. And then she got super pissed at me and was like, this between me and my husband. And then she said, I know. And then she said, well, I bet he, I bet he's just watching it and like laughing. And and then I thought, okay, now, hon, you're in denial. Like, there's no way. So she asked him about it and he got super defensive and he's like, and and problem is, I said, don't let him know it came from me because he already doesn't like me. <laughs> he already senses that you, you defame him. <laughs> yes. So I said, don't let him know. But she had just been out with me. So, of course, he figured it out because all of a sudden she's like, oh, so you do watch Tucker. Oh, What's the reason? And he got super defensive. And he's like, I don't have to explain my viewing habits to anyone. If you know someone voted for Trump. And you know they watch Tucker Carlson, who, by the way, I don't know if you watch John Oliver. I, I wish everyone in the country was like required to. Have you, have you ever seen John Oliver last week tonight? I've seen John Oliver. He's great. I haven't seen it about Tucker Carlson. He did a whole one on Tucker Carlson, which I showed my friend. And it was so upsetting because it had three different like top clans people literally saying, we watched Tucker Carlson twice. We love Tucker Carlson because he's sending our message. Like it was so clear cut. And I'm thinking, I don't know how to approach someone like that if they think that he's not just vile and spreading so much hate. I'm struggling. I, you know, I want to do what you're telling me to do. And I do it with some people, but someone like that, I just feel like they're too far gone. You, I don't know. I, I'm just putting it out there because I'm sure there's other white people listening going, yeah, that's how my grandpa is or that's how my cousin is. Right. So I would, th- I would look at it like this. Like, like, um, okay. let's assume, you know, this, as we, as I said, about 50% of white people think racism is n- not a problem. You know, 50% of white people uh, think it's a problem. So the goal, one of the goals of anti-racism movement, according to David, is to, let's say, shift that 10% so that in, Five years, it's 40-60 instead of 50-50. Right. Now, that means you're not going to get everybody. You're just trying to shift those people. However, interacting with people who are not going to be shifted might be might teach you some things that are useful for other people. Oh. So if you, let, if you let go of the goal of trying to change this guy who's probably too far gone, but still interact with him using best practice methods, you can, you can practice your methods that are going to – that ultimately – you're going to use with other people who are more gettable. So you're looking at, you're looking at your interaction with him as practice. It also will turn out if you are practicing those methods, you have a better relationship with him, which is better for your ecosystem of friendship anyway, because you can get along better with him. There's less tension between you and him anyway. So I'm just saying one way to think about that is as you try to use compassion based methods with him, you're just practicing, but it turns out the practice will help you in other ways, but you're not trying to get him because he's too far gone. I see. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting. I'm not saying he's a psychopath, but my husband and I have been watching this show on Netflix called Mindhunter. 
it's really good, but it's dark. But it's basically about these guys in the 70s. They work for the FBI and they're behavioral scientists. And they go and they interview like the worst serial killers or, you know, people who do horrific things. And it's so they can learn what to look for and what questions to ask. So I feel badly. But when you said that, I started thinking of that show. I don't really watch entertainment TV or that kind of entertainment TV. So that's really helpful. Yeah, it, it really is. Cause it's like, okay, so what they learned from this guy who murdered a bunch of people, they can see ahead of time, maybe in somebody who committed right. one crime and what's going to make it turn into more and what makes it serial and what mo- motivates them and what was their childhood. It's really interesting. But when you said that, I thought, okay, so that's kind of what's going on on Mindhunter. So yeah, I'm going to try that. And I like that, that I'm not necessarily going to change him, but it'll get me practicing doing the things that I need to do with other people who aren't. Who are more yeah. Watching Tucker Carlson behind their black wives' um, back. <laughs> it's just so right. ridiculous. Right. Yes. But I, I did apologize to her. I do think he's an ass. I don't think she should be married to him, but it's her marriage. It just makes me sad um, because he won't. I tried to have serious conversations with him about Trump, and he just makes jokes or he deflects. Let's be honest. Were you trying to persuade him or demonstrate to him that he's wrong? In the, in, the, in, the, in these conversations? No, I would. This was through text. And maybe it wasn't, but no, oh. I was trying to ask him like serious questions. What's an example? It's been a couple years. Here's the issue the issue is not what's the subject of the question, it's the tone and intention of the question. So you could, so whether it could be about immigration, it could be about tax cuts, it could be about whatever it is. Part of what you want to examine, and if you, if you were to want to examine it, you would look at what is the tone of the question because people can sense. When the tone of the question is, I'm really just trying to gather evidence so I can either conclude myself that you're wrong or I'm going to I'm going to gather this evidence up so that in 10 minutes from now I can show you you're wrong. And that's a different. So when people sense that that's what's going on, then then, yeah, it, they, they, on some level, you could argue they're doing y'all both a favor by deflecting the conversation to something that's not as contentious. Like, like, like so. The, so the fact that he wasn't serious. Right. I mean, he might, he, he might be a jerk in a number of ways. I'm just saying that if you're coming at him with trying to essentially trying to prepare a case for his wrongness, right. then uh, I'm, I'm, I gave him a big pass for de- deflecting the question because he senses that and he doesn't want to deal with that. Right. Now, what about the whole fact that he's watching it behind his wife's back and taping well, it? And that's kind of <laughs> weird, right? And then acting no, all no defensive. Question. No question. No question about it. So there's something weird going on there is what I'm saying. Oh, and no I think question. he is racist. You can be married to a black person and still be racist. Well, yeah, there's, there's no question. The fact okay. that he's hiding, the fact that he's hiding <laughs> it from his wife. <laughs> I mean, so I mean that that you know that that obviously says something about um, the fact that he knows that these views right. will be automatically judged by his wife, and it might cause a rift between them. And 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 this this is the. I mean, at some point we're going to talk about my uh, clubhouse thing this Sunday. This is exactly what we're talking about. I hadn't been on clubhouse for a while and you reached out to me, which is great because you have a new room. So I'd love you to tell us about it. The clubhouse group I have now is called white people whispering. And it's not, it, it was intended to, that was intended to be a kind of a clickbaity, sexy title based on the fact that on the daily show, I was called the white people whisperer, right? So it yeah, tried, that was great. It tries to leverage that. This particular topic is on interracial friendships, but Three, two weeks ago, we did a topic on critical race theory. So I'm just saying it's not it's not going to all be about interracial friendships, oh, except okay. for this particular, like last week and this week, are about interracial friendships. But there, there might be, you know, might be other ones. Like, you know, they're, they're going to be, it's not all going to be on interracial friendships. 
What came up during that group? You, I know you had told me that the white people were like hesitant to come up to the stage. Did any come up? Yeah, one. <laughs> one. <laughs> white people can be so scared. I mean, maybe it's understandable. <laughs> um, you know, people people can be so, that, 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 I mean, a whole other problem in the interracist movement is right. a level of um, hypercriticality that I think both white allies bring to each other and people of color often bring to white folks, maybe some of that's understandable, but I'm just saying it, it produces a kind of, a, um, uh, it, uh, it makes people scared because they know they're going to be jumped on for not saying things the right way. I mean, and, and that problem is, I think, a problem. I mean, James Carville's talked about the wokeness problem as a big problem for the, 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 the progressive movement as a general matter. So I think that you have you know, I think you see it on Clubhouse. So you got white people want to come to these rooms and witness, but they don't want to get on stage because they know they say the wrong thing. They say, no matter what they say, somebody going to find it problematic. And, you know, right. people yeah. people can be, it's what they call a white fragility. <laughs> people can be kind of fragile. They're just scared. And, eh, you know, I'm not, I don't do that because I don't think that's hell. I don't think that's the best way to build a movement. But I'm right. just saying people don't, people don't know me. They don't know I want to give all the white people a hug. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Camp, because I did get a a message from a woman who I was on. I wasn't on this clubhouse group with her, but she's definitely an ally. She's not just performative. Like I've seen her around. I've heard her speak. And she was in a group and she was talking about this documentary and she was hired to do some, I don't know exactly what it was, but some kind of set design or something for it. And they created this whole thing about white women and white fragility, and they made it sort of like based on that game operation. And it was kind of interesting. It was like, here's your white fragility bone, like kind of to show mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And the, the second she said operation, one of the black women on the call or on the clubhouse was like, oh, you think this is a game? And she goes, no, no, no. And they just shut her down and no one would listen. And right. she was so upset. And I said, I wish I was there because, I, I mean- I would have gotten thrown under the bus, but I would have been like, look, you have to just listen. She's not, she's part of this documentary talking about white women's fragility. This is a great way to illustrate it, but they just heard the word operation. That's a game. You think racism is a game. Get the fuck out, blah, blah, blah. And it was just a disaster. So so Lisa, I'm I'm, I'm, going to push the edge on it right now with you, Lisa, and tell you one of the things I'm thinking about doing, I'm not sure I'm going to do under white people whispering. I think that if we're going to look at the interests of the movement, at some point, we have to have a conversation about what might be called black fragility, which has to do with like excessive responses, excessive emotionality. Like what you just described sounds excessive. Like essentially people are too, people are excessively triggered. And then, and then, so they, this, this, I mean, you know, even you just describing this. Yeah. I can understand. It's, It's one thing for somebody to say, part of me feels a little, there's a part of me that feels a little insulted or that the commitment to a game. That's one thing to notice that and to speak of that. That's kind of mindful potentially. But if somebody, somebody to like hijack the whole conversation and blast her for doing that, that, yeah. that that's, that's trauma. Now, you know, you got to respect, have some amount of respect for trauma, but at some point we got to ask ourselves a question. Um, is, is, is there certain fragility going on within that that needs yeah. to be, where we need to invite people to look at it that way, so, and to experience these same things less uh, less traumatically. 
Right. And it's tough because you're talking about people of color, that there's a lot of trauma and there's been a lot of insults and and there's a lot of trust, right? Or lack of trust with white people. This woman was, but to me, it's like, she's working on documentary to educate about racism, yet she got totally shit on. Right. And she called me and she was so bummed out. She's like, I don't know if I can go back. And honestly, it's funny because you had contacted me and said, oh, I haven't, you haven't been on Clubhouse for a while. That was one of the reasons. I just felt like I, I want to be in those rooms and I wow. always speak up and I haven't gotten any flack at all. I don't know if they just can tell I'm genuine or what, but which isn't fair to say, because I think that woman was genuine as well, but I just come across in a different way perhaps, or because they see, they, you know, you can click on someone's bio right away. And the first thing it talks about is the work that I do. And so I think, okay, so I'm going to, so they're going to give me a chance, right? People might say, well, I'm going to give her a chance. Right. But after that, and just some other stuff, I was like, God, people are so quick to just lump yeah. everybody in one basket or the other. And that's not right. And it just got stressful. It was stressing me out. So I'm like, I'm going to take a break. Part of what I got to figure out how to do just to be to be honest with you, like my my intention of the white people whispering room, and it might not, it might it might need to evolve to a different room. My intention was to kind of create a space for white folks who aspire to be allies to kind of have a good setting to talk about their efforts to do that and get some coaching around that. That's what the White Ally Toolkit Project is about. Now it turns out, you know, I first did a thing on critical race theory. Did a thing last week, white people not speaking up. So it's be- the room has become more black than I originally intended. So I have to figure out, do I change the name of the room or start a different room or whatever? Because I think that white people clearly clearly need spaces to work out their stuff. Um, and 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 the spaces where they're not going to be, they, they are not going to fear being jumped on. Because as you just described, they are, in fact, largely jumped on. So. Yes. So now I'm not saying that that jumping on doesn't doesn't produce learning sometimes. Sure. But sometimes it's not produce learning. It just produces <laughs> it, it produces the opposite of learning. And so part of what I'm I'm working with, uh, I'm potentially working with one of my the woman who's going to moderate the thing on Sunday to try to create spaces that are that are in fact white centered. Right. They're focused on white people. So and, and they're focused on trying to create an atmosphere where white people can learn uh, from being supported, not learn from being criticized. And sometimes learning learning from being criticized is important, but we need spaces that is not that. So so I'm trying to that are not that. So I'm trying to figure out how do I find that? Because I think I have a talent. Like I told you, I want to I want to hug the earnest white people. <laughs> I don't want to stop them down. I'm terrible. No, I'm trying. I remember there was a woman. Another one I was talking to was like, I need a space where white women could just talk and be able to say stuff again without that fear. But you can't put like whites only. That's going to be horrific. Well, you, can't, like, <laughs> you can't have private rooms though. Okay. So, so the person I'm working with, her name is Linda Marie Miller. Oh, I've been wanting to interview her. She, oh, yo, she, you, she's she, fabulous. You, she is. So not only she, I mean, she's fabulous. She, she's like, um, she was second in a worldwide contest, speech making contest with Toastmasters. Like she was number two. Oh my gosh! And, and her speech was about allyship, basically. Oh my so god! Definitely, her on. you should definitely have her on your show. And she's gotten more and more. And she and she kind of stumbled into this topic, and then it rose to this. She got second in the second in the worldwide contest, and much of her work since then, that was only a couple of years ago, has tw- turned toward this. So you definitely should. Um, people should look her up. Her, she has a has a uh, a group 
called, uh, and it's not on Facebook, it's on Facebook, I believe, it's called One Shared Humanity, so you, people can look that up, and okay. it's all about, well, this is what the topic says, so you definitely should interview her, and people should look her up, Linda Marie, Linda Marie, Linda-Marie Miller, so, um, so she has, she has some small rooms that are private closed rooms oh, where okay. are, that, that are that are intentionally designed to be forums where she works with a with a black woman to try to create these healing spaces for for uh white people mostly women but not only so i'm just saying yes you cannot have an official club that says white only you can't in fact have private rooms she just told me last night that you, they're starting to be private clubs so oh. I'm, so i'm just saying that this um uh, it, it may be more possible to create these kind of spaces uh, than than I than um, we thought before. And so the reason I'm smiling is because I was talking to <laughs> I was talking to um, to an, uh, another friend of mine uh, yesterday about the the need for that maybe there needs to be a space for uh, white people to kind of like confess their to confess their racial problematic thoughts because as you know, right. I think a core, a core way of advancing race relations is white people confessing and, and, and what they what they sometimes think. And in fact, th- that is aligned with uh, Dr. Eber Max Kendi, who says the heart of racism is denial. The heart of anti-racism is confession. So I'm thinking I need to create a room that's like, it's, it's like the, it's the white people absolution room. So they come to the room and they come prepared to, you know, forgive me, for, forgive me, David, for I have sinned. And so maybe I'm wearing, maybe I'm wearing like a, that, that day, my avatar has like priestly robes on. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to like hear people's confession, right. give them absolution, tell them it's okay. And tell them what's most important is to tell this story to other white people, because part of what keeps racism is play, in place is people, white people not owning up to their own racist thoughts to other white people. So it's not shocking that a whole bunch of white people are denied about racism because y'all all ain't talking about it, including the people who recognize you got problematic thoughts, right? And then the other half of y'all don't even want to admit it to yourselves. So um, so anyway, uh, I might do the white the, the white people's confession space at some point. <laughs> oh, I think that'd be great. I think I think it's I mean, I'm 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 only half joking. But no, I'm, no, I know I'm not in the priestly robes, but I think I think that ultimately part of what's going to have to happen is that there needs to be a shift to where people are admitting that they sometimes have these racially problematic thoughts. I have them, and not just about white people. So I'm just saying we mm-hmm. all are subject to white superiority thinking. So part of part of the uh, transformation is to start admitting that and not acting like that's the biggest sin in the world. I'm, I'm still waiting for a politician to say. Right. I sometimes have racially problematic thoughts. I think that'll that'll cause a big shift. And Joe Biden needs to do it because he's the one to talk about <laughs> Obama as articulate. Remember, he's talking clean and articulate the first time when Obama <laughs> yes. ran. Well, that was that was that was problematic already. That was very he, he problematic. Already in the public domain as, as having a racial screw up. I would love to go back to my friend's husband. And just maybe you can give an example of somebody who we already have a difficult relationship. He already knows that I think he's, you know, a garbage thinker. Oh, I have a, I have something you can do for him. Okay, good. So um, something I teach in my um, courses. So so basically, I don't have a course. I'm reformulating my team, so I don't have a open enrollment course coming. Although people should still come to. Uh, the White Ally Toolkit, whiteallytoolkit.com and sign up oh, for our yes. newsletter. So whiteallytoolkit.com and sign up for a newsletter. So when we have a course coming, we can l- let you know about it. But one of the things that we teach in the part two of that course, we used to teach in part one, but we 
switch it to part two, is something called the apologetic non-apology. And it's a method of trying to hold yourself accountable to somebody for something you did to them that was wrong in the past without apologizing. Because sometimes apologizing creates, uh, we have expectations and a script in our head about the, tra- the, tra- the apology transaction, and that sometimes can go awry. So so the apologetic non-apology would be something like, um, it has three parts, past, present, future. So it'd be something like this. Suppose, suppose that um, I had slammed you unnecessarily in the past. Um, okay. So, so I would, it'd be something like this. So Lisa, remember that time a month ago where you uh, you talked about uh, the uh, Black Lives Matter and um, and you said something about how the um, the 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 ones that were the the, <clears throat> the protests that were violent really troubled you and really bugged you, and you say, yeah, I remember that. Okay. So, you know, I realized in that conversation that I kind of like uh, I stopped listening to you. I just kind of resp- I just kind of slammed you unnecessarily. I, I was really condescending, and um, and in a, in a way that was not uh, that I that, that I don't like having done that. That's the past. And you know, even, Lisa, even as I say this now, I'm a little embarrassed to even bring it up because I don't want to be like that. I'm I'm embarrassed to admit that, but I think I want to admit that past present as we go forward. Um. If we talk about that again, we can talk about it now or some other point. Uh, I want to say I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you more questions about your experience, so I understand where you're coming from. Is that okay if I do that? And what oh, we yeah, say, we'll say yes, right? Yes. So yes, notice yes, I didn't yes. apologize. Like I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't ask you. I didn't apologize and ask you to accept my apology. And I didn't apologize and, and then expect you to apologize to me because you might have been a jerk too. So that so the the, the the trick of the apologetic non-apology is that you own up to what you did, but you don't create the apology transaction and act that script where I'm waiting for something from you. No, I'm just making a statement. I'm owning up to my part of the mess. And Uh, okay. uh, Right. So, so, so I'm offering you that and offering you listeners to that, um, listeners to that, because that might be something you might do uh, with homie, right. Is to own up to some moment that you were you, you, it could be the text exchange you had. You realized that you were kind of probing him to look for evidence. You weren't really curious. I mean, whatever you want to do, right. Right? you own up to some specific transgression that you did. That you, even if he was the bigger jerk, if you were, a, if you you're, you look back on your behavior and it was a problem, you own up to that. Say that you how you feel now talking about it because by offering your vulnerability forward, it often inoculates them. It, it, it prevents them from being jerks right now. It doesn't prevent it, but it makes it less likely because people, unless he's completely a sociopath, uh, <laughs> um, people want to take care of you if you're owning up to vulnerability in the moment. So again, right. it's past, transgression, current vulnerability, future commitment to asking more questions. And you might not even do it right then because you're too nervous or whatever. It might be better off to just say, if we talk about this again, not to say right now, I want to do this. You signal how you want to have the conversation differently. So a lot of people have found the the apologetic non-apology a very effective uh, reset, a me- mechanism for resetting a relationship. All right, David, is there anything else you wanted to add? And make sure to tell us when the group is. So the White People Whispering Room on Clubhouse is from 2 to 4 on Sundays typically. And it is this Sunday, um, what is it, July 11th, yes. from 2 to 4 Eastern. And the purpose of it is to talk about the question is, are um, uh, interracial 
uh, friendships, is honesty possible? So we're exploring this question about uh, whether complete honesty is possible and what's our experience of that. So it's a space where we're basically trying to share experiences where we might get to opinions about what's going on, but we're mostly sharing experiences. I'm, I'm, I'll be offering some opinions, but so this is not a room where we're debating ideas where people are offering for their experiences. So my hope is that we can get some people, especially some white people who will come to the stage and they're not going to be harmed or bitten or hit. <laughs> they're just going to be asked for their experience. And if their experiences, they think they complete honesty as possible. That's fine. Or they, they, that's fine. I, I, I will ask them some questions about that and, you know, we'll see what happens. People, uh, you know, it, it of course is possible. It just might be rare. And there might be people who think that the relationship is honest and it's not as honest upon further inspection. Right. So right. I'm hoping that people can um, do that and, and they can follow me on Clubhouse as well as follow that room because the other topics, will, there'll be other topics, but uh, that I will maintain that room because I'm ultimately trying to use, trying to find people that I can help on uh, 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 white people I can help. And for that matter, people who need consultation about these kind of intergroup issues um, on Clubhouse. But I'm, again, I'm, I'm especially interested in uh, helping white folks because y'all, the way y'all talk to each other is so bad and it's so unhelpful. I wish y'all would stop. Stop being so mean to the other white people, Lisa. Be nicer to people. Yeah, but I have my own, I have my own baggage with, with anti-Semitic racist white people growing up who beat up my brother and scared the shit out of me and filled our mailbox with bees. So listen, I have my own trauma. Dr. Camp, this has been great. Okay, tell us the name on Clubhouse and then your handle or your name on the name of the group oh, and sure. then your my, name my, on Clubhouse. My handle on Clubhouse is the dialogue guy, just like it is on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, follow me on those places. And and also, uh, um, so, and then on, so, so the name of the room on Clubhouse is White People Whispering. I'm the dialogue guy on uh, Clubhouse and Instagram and Twitter. So you know, give me likes and follows because no matter what they say, all likes matter. So the, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I hate that all lives matter, but all likes matter. I like so very much feel free to, go to get the white ally toolkit on Facebook and follow that as well as the dialogue club, on, the dialogue company on Facebook and, and like that too. Dr. Camp, you're so great. Is this every Sunday? Yeah, it's going to be every Sunday from two to four. That's like the standard time, so I'll, I'll keep using that time. Well, I'm going to be there this Sunday. Dr. Camp, you are a gem. Thank you for all you do. Thank you so much for having me on your show again. I'd love to come back. Yeah, I want to have you back soon. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important, and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also, follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.